We will be in Genesis chapter 34. Let's pray and we'll go back over uh, a couple things from last chapter to lead us into the study tonight so that we're all refreshed and remembering um, how this story uh, kind of flows. So please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come here and seek you. God, I pray that you would speak through your word. God, this this tragic, tragic story. Lord, you have something to communicate to each of us. God, and I pray um, that we would grasp it. Lord, that we would purpose to understand it. Lord, this act um, isn't here uh, for for nothing, but for something. And you inspired this chapter, uh, just as you inspired the rest of this book, God. So I pray that you would speak to us even through tragedy. In your name, amen. All right. Um, if you recall, last week, uh, <clears throat> Jacob finally entering into the promised land some 20 years after he had previously left, he sees his brother coming towards him with what? 400 soldiers, right? So Jacob thinks that something terrible, something tragic is going to happen to him. So he comes up with these different schemes to first protect himself, then to protect his family. And lastly, he puts himself out there uh, and he's meeting his brother Esau, and the last thing he would have thought happens. His brother embraces him, and he weeps on his shoulder, and there's this beautiful picture of reconciliation, right? And last week, that's uh, what we discussed, being reunited, but not just reunited, uh, but reconciled, and that idea that we're restoring friendly relations, Now, if you remember at the end of this chapter, uh, Jacob is being Jacob again, not being Israel, and he deceives his brother, and he says, go ahead, go down south, I'll follow you, be right behind you, don't leave any of your soldiers with me, I don't want to burden them, go on ahead, and now Esau travels south uh, to Mount Seir, and Jacob, he travels north, and he lands in Shechem. Remember, we discussed that there's some indication that God was calling Jacob to Bethel all along. Remember when he had first uh, made contact with Jacob while he was in Laban's land, that he told him, hey, I'm the God of Bethel, come back to the land of your ancestors, your family's land, which he was talking about the promised land. But I pointed you to Genesis chapter 35. Um, the next time we see God speak to Jacob, he says, hey, get to Bethel. You need to come to Bethel because he's in a place where he likely shouldn't be. Though he's in the promised land, he's in this specific city that's very worldly. And that's what we're going to see here in this text. Now, um, I think we're good. Um, no young kids here in this service tonight. It's probably good. Um, if you guys, if this is too too mature for, for you, you might want to join youth or high school ministry tonight. So we're going to see a tragic thing happen here in Genesis chapter 34. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is going to be raped. Okay, now, after Jacob... Uh, Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped, we see the brothers get upset and they react and they come against Shechem and all the people in his land. And basically what starts with one tragedy turns into another tragedy, which brings me to the title of this teaching, Two Wrongs Don't Make a Right. You ever heard that one before? Two wrongs don't make a right. That's exactly what's going to happen in this text. And you will understand as we dive in. In Genesis chapter 34, picking it up in verse 1, 
It says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. So Dinah, she's just wandering around. She wants to see the daughters of this land in Shechem, probably to make some friends, right? Look what happens. In verse 2, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Okay, so Dinah likely uh, walking through Shechem, trying to meet some people, trying to make some friends, probably had an innocent heart about this whole thing. Well, when you look at the culture of that day, it was very unwise for a female to walk around unattended by a male. Okay, In the Canaanite culture, it was very common for females that were found alone to be raped. In fact, some scholars suggest that there were different religions that actually implemented this as a positive thing. That if you found a girl that was alone, it was a good religious act for you to rape her. This is appalling, right? And we'll get into this appalling thing a little bit later, but I want to focus on something. This story is absolutely brutal. This this story in the Bible is absolutely brutal, and it gets even more brutal as we continue to read, and we can look at a story like this, or a story about Lot's daughters getting them drunk and sleeping with them, or any of these crazy things that That happened, and we can look at that and be like, what is this? Like, what is happening here? Why is the Bible Bible speaking about these things? But when we look at the brutal historical accounts in the Bible, it actually points to its validity. It supports the fact that the Bible is trying to communicate truth. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, when I first started reading the Bible before I actually got saved, I have told you in the past, I came upon that story with Lot and his daughters. And I'm like, what is this? Because my perspective about what I was reading was skewed. It was wrong. I thought I was reading a book about good, godly people. And this book was supposed to tell me how to live godly. That's true. But there's also another purpose in the book. And that other purpose is pretty significant. It's to point to the fact that we each have sinful natures. And man throughout history has had this sinful nature. So the Bible, God, he's he's not afraid to reveal that sinful nature, even when it's appalling, even when it's brutal. We look at stories like that and it's obvious man wasn't. Men isn't good in and of themselves. They are sinful. They do things that are absolutely despicable. And that's exactly what's happening in this story. And it's so interesting when you look at the different negative stories throughout the Bible. Each one has its purpose. But again, it it just points so sharply to the fact that the Bible is true. And it's trying to get across truth you look at the disciples if if they were trying to to paint a pretty picture of the messiah they wouldn't have said a lot of the things that they said about jesus yes he was absolutely perfect but if they wanted to paint a picture of the messiah that they were expecting they would have probably fabricated some lies or said some things to make jesus look like the king that they thought who that was going to come, who the Jewish people expected to come, they probably wouldn't have bashed themselves so much. You probably wouldn't have heard so many negative things about Peter. In fact, you hear negative things about each and every one of the disciples, except for maybe Andrew. Um, He's included with a couple of the negative things that Jesus says to the whole group, but he has the best testimony of the twelve. The point is the Bible is so focused on communicating truth to us even when that truth is really hard to hear and that's the truth that's being communicated in this passage dinah she's raped she's violated by shechem look at verse three his soul was strongly attracted to dinah 
the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. He loves her? Is that what love looks like? Shechem's love for Dinah was a false love. It's uh, really the love of the world. Now, he did have this emotional draw to her, but that's not the love that we see defined in the word of God. It's not biblical love. It's not 1 Corinthians chapter 13 love. This was a different kind of love, which brings me to the first point. True love isn't forced. True love isn't forced. If he truly loved her, he wouldn't have forced himself on her. Now, this gives us a good picture of what the the love as defined of by the world looks like. When you look at the world and how they consider love, it's simply an emotional urge that is fulfilled through the act of sex. When you're looking at a man and a woman loving each other, that's really how the world pictures love. But what is that? We know biblically There's another word for that. It's lust, right? It is emotional urge that needed to be acted upon in this sexual way. That's the kind of love that Shechem has for Dinah. But this lust, this love that the world adheres to, it's it's extremely damaging. And ultimately, it's, it's a counterfeit love. See, lust... Its goal is to rip you off by selling you something short of what God wants for you. Selling you something short uh, of what biblical love actually is. And the enemy, he uses this lust all the time. So often I've worked with many young adults in my past and um, just even in past history, I knew so many Guys and girls that are tricked into this love. And I know so many girls specifically that in their past, and maybe you know some too, that they act in this sexual act to gain love from a man. They think if I do this specific thing, he's telling me if you love me, you would do this thing. And they act in that specific thing only to realize They were robbed. That wasn't true love. That was simply lust. And the enemy ultimately got the best of them. That's not what love is in God's eyes. Again, that's not what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 defines love as. Yes, there's an emotion attached to love. And there's a chemistry. We're talking about a man and a woman. There's absolutely a chemistry there. But love, as defined by the Bible, is an action, right? Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave behave rudely. It's self-sacrificial. It's not selfish. It doesn't force itself. It gives itself. And that's not the kind of love that we see that Shechem has for Dinah. Look what happens. Genesis chapter 34, verse 4. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. So even in that culture, uh, in Canaan, uh, marriage, um, to solidify a marriage, it was more than sleeping with someone, and you actually had to have your parents solidify that thing. Okay, so this wasn't just for the Israelites, this was for the people of Canaan. It was just a cultural thing that they did. The two parents had to get together to solidify the marriage, specifically the fathers. Okay, so that's what's happening here. That's why he's going to his dad. Verse 5, And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. By lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. So we see here this 
uh, story is brought to Jacob and his sons, Jacob doesn't seem very riled up about it. Okay, he holds his peace. He, he's he's not getting riled up throughout the text. He doesn't get very riled up about this. He there's no indication that he gets angry about this act. The thing that he ends up getting angry about is what Simeon and Levi do later. This is uh kind of like throws you off like Jacob. What's what's going on here with your mentality? But I I want to point out something. The end of verse seven. The brothers speaking of her brothers. The Men that make up the 12 tribes of Israel later on, it says a thing which ought not to be done. They knew this was wrong. They knew this was a wrong act that raping a a girl was wrong. It was appalling. Why? There was no law that told them this. The written law didn't come later. 400 plus years later until Moses received it from God on Mount Sinai, right? So how do they know it's wrong? Because every man has a sense of morality. Every single person has given, been given a sense, an idea of morality. Let me make the point and then I'll explain. Men were made with morality. Men were made with morality. If you look at Romans chapter 2, Let's look at one first, then we'll look at two. I want to point to two places in Romans. Each and every man on this earth has some sense of morality, even before the law was given. Romans chapter 1. I wasn't telling you yet, so I would get there before you. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness, meaning they have an indication of what truth is, maybe not a full indication, but an indication nonetheless. Because what what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So this talks about God first, how every man knows deeply inside of them somehow, some way that there is a God. The the created things themselves, creation itself, points to the fact that there is a God, so they're without excuse. Look what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. He's speaking of judgment, and he's talking about even without the law. But just look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, how could they do the things in the law if they weren't given the law by nature? Look what happens. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or self-excusing them. So there's this reality that every single human being has a conscience, right? We have a conscience. We have a sense of morality. Now, when we receive the Holy Spirit for believers, we have like a, a super sense of morality. Right And the Bible teaches us a deeper morality. And then we get to places like Sermon on the Mountain. It's like, oh my gosh, exceeding morality, right? Exceeding righteousness. But we all start with this baseline understanding of morality. That's the 12 tribes right now. They don't have the law. They know about God. But they know that this act was completely wrong. Now, what's interesting about this, and this is why I want to bring it out, because even before the law, we see the sense of morality. But now where we stand today, a lot of people discredit, disregard and even try to disprove that there is morality. I've had many conversations with different atheists, and I'll get into one of them a little bit later. But many atheists will try to say that there isn't morality. How can they say that? Well, uh. We're just a product of chance and we just do what our DNA tells us to do. When you really think about it, because we only do what our DNA tells us to do, nothing we do is wrong. 
We're just simply going, rolling with the DNA, doing what the DNA told us. We answer to the DNA. We don't answer to any other thing. There is no moral law. In fact, I once watched an argument between a Christian apologetist, uh, apologist, sorry, trying to say apologetics and apologist, um, a Christian apologist arguing against an atheist. And you know what this atheist said? He says, no, there is no morality. He went through this whole thing. And the Christian asked him, so it would be okay for you to sleep with your sister? Atheist said, yeah, morally, there is no morals. So there's nothing wrong with that. We hear that and cringe, right? We hear that like, sleep with your sister? There's nothing wrong with that? We're like, and that's not just our faith. I knew that before my faith. Like, come on, we know this. We know that that's wrong. But he's like, your DNA just tells you not to do that because if you have babies together, then they could have problems and all these different things. But that's the only reason your DNA tells you that you shouldn't sleep with your sister. It has nothing to do with this greater, higher moral law. And this guy's like on TV. I'm like, are you, who, does anybody agree with this guy? Like, really? Are any of the atheists in the background going, yeah, good point? It's like, yeah, dude, then, yeah, act out your faith in atheism. That's horrible. That's appalling as well. And then there are some atheists, many actually, that, the, that, that believe there is morality. And uh, they say that the morality is really just a product of our, our herd instinct. And that's a DNA thing too. And the only reason like we care for people or have that feeling of love or whatever is because this herding instinct. Well, the problem with that argument is when you consider natural selection and uh, evolution and all these things, when, when you're just going by the herding instincts, how can you explain acts of heroism? How can you explain when someone is willing to lay down their life for someone else? What do I mean? So I had this conversation with this guy in uh, Delray Beach, probably the smartest guy that I've ever shared the gospel with. And I start talking to him, and you know, first time I mentioned Jesus, he laughs at me, right? And then um, I start talking to him, and I'm like, well, what do you believe? And he's like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I was like, okay. So if we were sitting across an intersection, I said, so if you saw a stroller with a baby in it, mom left, for some reason she's not there, you saw a stroller rolling through the intersection and cars coming, would you not run there and grab that stroller and risk your life? He said, well, I suppose I would. So why do you think you would do that? He said, natural selection wouldn't tell you to do that. Natural selection would tell you that your life is more valuable than that baby's life because you play a greater impact on the species than that baby can. And we don't even know if that baby's going to make it to mature into an adult. So why do you think you would do that? He said, I don't know. I said, because God put that in your heart. God said that greater one love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. To die for someone else, that's from God. That's not from DNA. You can't explain that away with natural selection. You know what ended up happening? I asked him after that. He's like, I guess you're right. So there is morality. I said, can we pray for you? He said, yeah, sure, pray for me. Why would an atheist let me pray for him? Who am I praying to? God. He let me pray for him because he was faced with the truth. And in that moment, he realized, okay, maybe what I thought wasn't what's really true and maybe i've been led astray and we prayed for that guy it was the craziest thing how can an atheist let you pray for them because romans chapter one says god the idea of god the reality that there is a god creation points to the fact that there's a god so he knows deep down that there is a god he just doesn't want to believe that there's a god why well maybe something really tragic really bad happened to him in his life and he doesn't want to admit that there's a sovereign loving god that allowed that thing because he doesn't understand suffering and free will and that concept uh most of the time and many of the conversations that i have when you get down to it it's the reality that atheists don't want to identify with a moral law because they'd rather break it. And 
If there's this moral law, that means that they're called to live up to it. And they would rather do what they want to do and pursue their own pleasures than answer to a moral law. But everybody knows this too. Laws don't come from nowhere. Laws don't just appear. We don't have laws in this country that just came from... It's not like the Constitution is like, it just came from nothing, right? Laws come from something. Laws come from lawgivers. So if there's a moral law that directly points to a moral God that gave that law, that put that law in us. So if they say there is a moral law, then it points directly to a moral law giver. Every law comes from an intelligent being, whether it's us or him. Back to Genesis chapter 34. verse 7, I want to reread it because there's another part that I want to focus on with this. So it says, uh, and the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry. So Jacob's sons, they were grieved, they were very angry, and rightfully so. Jacob, will see, he doesn't do anything about the matter. So Dinah's brothers take it into their own hands. They feel a moral responsibility to stand up for their sister who was violated. And they get angry and they get grieved, rightfully so. But what they end up doing is they get angry and they commit sin. We can't allow our anger to lead us to sin. In fact, the Bible says, be angry and do not sin, which brings me to the third point. Third point, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. That's a weird scripture, right? It's in Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four is just one of the places. Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Listen to that. When we give place to anger, when we give place to wrath, we give place to the devil. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Simeon and Levi. They give in to their anger and the enemy ultimately gets the best of them, if you will. And there's this other tragic act that happens. But he says, be angry and do not sin. Being angry in and of itself is not a sin. It's what we do with the anger. Jesus got angry. In fact, I can think of two times specifically, more than that, but two times specifically in John chapter 2 and Mark chapter 11, separate events, but two times Jesus gets angry because of what's happening in his father's house. And he goes into the temple and he flips over the tables and in john chapter 2 he's he's literally driving out people with a whip it doesn't say he whipped the people but he drives them out with a whip why because sin was happening it's called righteous indignation it was righteous anger jesus had every reason to be angry and he's never committed sin but what did that anger in jesus produce see Jesus didn't get angry and commit sin. He got angry and he got rid of sin. That's what we're called to do. We're supposed to get angry at sin, not angry and sin. It's a big difference there. We get angry at the sin and that, that, that motivation, that anger. God gave us that for a reason. If it's used in the right way to get angry at our sin looks like doing whatever it takes to get rid of the sin. That's what Jesus did. That was the example that he set when he saw sin specifically there in the temple. He got rid of it. He made sure that those circumstances weren't going to continue on in that place of worship. So Simeon, Levi... The brothers in general, they get angry, but Simeon and Levi specifically, they allow their anger to get the best of them and they end up committing sin, as we'll see. Genesis chapter 34, verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul 
of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. Okay, lots of problems here. All right. Uh, first and foremost, it's already been established that Abraham's descendants are supposed to be of a pure lineage. They're not supposed to intermarry with other Canaanites, right? And we see that throughout the chapters that we previously read. That's why Abraham sends a servant back to Laban's household to get Rebekah to bring her back because they weren't supposed to marry a Canaanite person. And then again, that's why Jacob sit back to Laban to get a wife of that same line, that same lineage, so that they wouldn't defile the line. And you remember how frustrated um, Isaac and Rebekah were when Esau married the Canaanite women. It says that they, they grieved them. It grieved them that they married these Canaanite women. So it's already been established that they're not supposed to marry the Canaanites. Okay, so now you got Shechem and his dad offering this. Okay, um, hey, let's let's hook up. All our daughters will marry all your men. All your uh, daughters will marry all our men, and we'll just come together as one big happy family. Not the family that God had intended, as we'll see. But look what he says here in verse eleven. Let me find favor. This is Shechem speaking. Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Think about this. Let me find favor in your eyes. Let me pay you off for the act that I committed. Let me find favor in your eyes. And it's like, yeah, that's in the past, but hey, let me just pay you off financially. I'll give you a big dowry and uh, that, let me marry Dinah and then everything will be good. I'll find favor in your eyes. We'll be good. It's absolutely insane. That's not how it works. The wages of sin is death. You can't pay for sin with money. I'm going to gain favor and I'm going to try to, uh, I'll pay you, I'll pay you off for the sin that I committed against your family. Okay. And really he's paying for her, not just to, not because of that. And that's not really the reason that he's trying to pay her. He's trying to not pay her, pay for her. He's trying to, um, put up a dowry so that he can marry her. But when you look at this truth in, um, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That's exactly what's going to happen to Shechem in this story. He sins. He tries to pay off the family, but that's not what he gets. He ends up dying. Not to ruin it for you. Most of you know the story. Look what happens. Genesis chapter 34, verse 13. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. So we see right off the bat, Jacob... Uh, Jacob's sons, they answer Shechem. We'll see the answer in a minute, but I want to point out something. They spoke to him deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. So their reasoning for speaking deceitfully was because Shechem defiled Dinah. This is really what they're saying. They're allowed to sin because Shechem sinned against Dinah. My sin's okay. We can speak deceitfully because this is what he did. They're accusing, sorry, their excuse for sinning is someone else's sin. Which brings me to the fourth and final point. Sin doesn't justify sin. Sin doesn't justify sin. Someone else's sin is not a legitimate reason for you to sin. We can have someone sin against us and we can desire to sin against them back. But if we do it, that doesn't make it right. 
That's where the two wrongs don't make a right come into play. Two sins don't make a right or two sins don't make a righteous. There's it doesn't work like that. You're just adding more sin into the equation. I'm going to tell you an embarrassing kind of embarrassing story. Um, so bef- way before I got saved, I was in high school and I was a freshman in high school and this guy stole my weed. So. So I fought him. I fought the guy because he stole my weed. I was thinking about that today. That is the most ridiculous thing. It's weed. He stole my weed. And I thought it was okay for me to beat this guy up because he stole my weed. It's just wrong on every level. And I thought I did right by that. I thought that that was a good thing that I did. He deserved this thing, right? He stole from me. But it's like, no, I look at that now and I'm like, you idiot. It's like, there's nothing about that that was right. That was wrong on all accounts. The weed, the fighting, the, the everything about it is unbiblical and it's not right. But we can do this sometimes. We can try to justify our sin because someone else sinned against us and now we act out and sin. Well, they did this, but it's so childish and it's, and it's not uh, of the Lord. <laughs> Man, I almost said something bad. Sorry. Genesis chapter 34. <laughs> If someone steals your weed, give them your tunic too. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) All accounts, that was wrong. Okay. Forgiveness, reconciliation, we discussed it in the last chapter. Genesis chapter 34, verse 14. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. Listen to what they say. They can't give their sister away to someone uncircumcised. Not we can't give our sister away to a rapist. They say we can't give our sister away to someone's uncircumcised, but a circumcised rapist, that's okay. And that's not really what they're saying, because remember, they're speaking deceitfully, right? They're tricking them right now. They're like, hey, you just got to get circumcised and then everything will be okay. Well, this is wrong as well because they're basically using a holy act of God to trick these people. Because circumcision, uh, it wasn't about the actual act. It was about what? The heart, right? It was an outward expression of an inward relationship that had been established with the Lord. And I'll point you to a supporting verse in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is inwardly, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The whole act of circumcision, yes, it was an external act, but it was supposed to be an indication of an internal relationship with the Lord. And when you look at those who were circumcised, I mean, Ishmael was circumcised. Um, Those that even weren't of the tribes of Israel, some of these other people got circumcised. And when you look at Exodus, it's not just uh, uh, the, the Israelites that are in the Exodus. There's Egyptians there as well. And some of them later on um, developed this relationship with the Lord. But the point is, this external act was just an act. It was all pointing to a, an inward, a sincere relationship with God. So they can get circumcised and not have a relationship with God. That's the problem. It's not the circumcision. Okay, and there's a lot to this and the lineage and everything like that, but we won't get into all of it for time's sake. Genesis chapter 34, verse 15. But on this condition, we will consent to you if you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughters and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, uh, Shechem Hamor's son. Okay, um, so when you look at uh, history, circumcision wasn't only practiced by the Israelites. There were other people groups that practiced circumcision. 
So just because those other people groups practice circumcision, it doesn't mean that they're they're saved of or of the they're of the lineage of Abraham. So this was actually a somewhat common practice. That's probably why this didn't throw Shechem off. It's probably like, okay, we get circumcised. A lot of people did it in ancient cultures for a cleanliness thing. Okay, we know that as far as Abraham goes, this was an act that God commanded to Okay, this is how we know that you're of the lineage of Abraham. This was an act of faith. This was an act of obedience. All right, but there are people in that culture that would be circumcised as well. So Shechem, uh, his father, they both agree. Verse 19, so the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. So listen to this. He doesn't delay. He does it immediately. He acts in immediate obedience. Great. It says, again, he was more honorable than all the household of his father. So if Shechem was the most honorable of all the household of his father, what does that say about his household? Okay, this guy's the most honorable. The guy that raped Dinah. That means this is a wicked people. These are perverse people. This place, Shechem, where they are, this is what the name of the place becomes. This is a full of, of, of wicked, wicked people. Genesis chapter 34, verse 20. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them are daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. So basically, uh, what they're doing is, Shechem and his father, they're convincing the men, hey, get circumcised, let's follow through with this. This is a very wealthy family. They're well off. So if we intermarry with them, we'll be well off too. This time of suffering will ultimately be worth it because you'll have money and you'll have women. So they're appealing to them in a very worldly way, right? Look at all the things that you're going to get, right? And so the guys do it. Look at verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of this city heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. So Simeon and Levi, they spoke deceitfully. Remember, they were just setting them up. So on the third day, when they're sore, when they're weak, when battling's the last thing on their minds, they're inebriated. Now, Simeon and Levi, they come and they slay all these men with the sword. They deceived him and they acted on it. Where do you think they learned this deceit and trickery from? Their father, the deceiver, led them in trickery. So Jacob will see he he goes hard on his on his boys and rightfully so in some manner. But he's the one that taught them how to deceive. He's the one that taught them how to manipulate. And they're only following in their father's footsteps. Continue on in verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. They not only killed all the people, they took everything. Some say that they likely believed that God had favor on them in this moment, not that God did have favor on them. Generally speaking, he did. But it's not like God wanted them to do this, okay? They were committing murder, right? So they were like, oh, well, we got away with it. Now we might as well take advantage of the situation. So they plunder. They take all of their belongings, including taking their wives and their children captive. Verse 30. 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Right off the bat, we see Jacob's concern for himself. When he heard the news about his daughter getting raped, there was no sign of concern. But now that there's the potential that he might be killed because of it, now he's concerned. So you see this interesting dynamic with Jacob. We see him in the last chapter. He was self-sacrificial. He put himself in the front lines, meeting Esau first, before he went before his wives, his servants, his children, putting himself out there. And that was a self-sacrificial act. He could have put himself last and ran once he saw people getting slain, but he didn't. He put himself first, but now we see this selfishness. So he has this self-sacrificial character quality, but he also has this selfish character quality, and that's what he's expressing here. He didn't seem to be very concerned for Dinah, but once he's impacted by this situation, now he's concerned. And he should be concerned because of what his sons did. But that's not what he says. It's not just, you did this and you sinned. You sinned against God. It's, no, because of what you did, this is how it's going to affect me. So there's the selfishness there. And look at the last verse, the verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So they're justifying their sin. These guys deserve what came to them. But there's another issue. Simeon and Levi, they took the vengeance of the Lord into their own hands. This bad thing happened to our sister. We're going to do something about it. I think they should have done something about it, but... Probably not what they ended up doing. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Instead of slaughtering all these men, they probably should have trusted the Lord to have vengeance for them. Now we're going to see later on, uh, towards the end of Genesis that these boys end up getting a punishment and suffering for this act. And the way it comes about is Jacob, just before he dies, he's blessing all of his children. And for Simeon and Levi, he curses them because of this very thing. And ultimately, he says, you're going to be scattered. You're not going to inherit inherit the land. And God actually follows through with this curse from Jacob. Uh, we see later on that Simeon, the tribe of, tribe of Simeon, um, it's ultimately dispersed and kind of gets carried uh, into Judah, into the tribe of Judah. And then Levi, they're supposed to be dispersed, but uh, they redeem themselves. How do they redeem themselves? Well, you remember when Moses came down um, the first time from Mount Sinai with the with the um, Ten Commandments and, and, and he dropped them and he broke them. Why? Because what he was looking at was the uh, the Israelites worshiping the golden calf and they were worshiping these idols. They raised up a God for themselves and the Levites were the ones that slayed all the people that were worshiping the idols. Some 3000 people, the Bible says, and because of this act, now they're given a portion. They're given a portion of land with each tribe. They're not to inherit a big chunk like the other tribes. So this curse is partially fulfilled in that they're scattered, but they end up becoming the priests because they slayed these 3,000 idol worshipers. That's another story. We will not get into that tonight. But considering all that happened in this text, it really boils down to anger. These boys, they messed up. Not because they got angry, but because anger got them. Anger got the best of them. And that anger influenced them to do something 
horrific. They killed a whole people group. It's genocide, if you will. They killed this whole entire group of people because they allowed anger to get the best of them. See, we're called to stand up for righteousness and anger in itself. Like I said, it's not a sin in and of itself. We're called to stand up for righteousness, have righteous indignation, but do it in a way that honors the Lord, that lines up with his word, that's, that's in a way that he can bless, just as Jesus turned over the tables, the money changers' tables, and he got angry at the sin that was happening in the temple, and he did something about it. That's the kind of anger that God will even encourage. If it's angry, anger about sin, do something with that, but don't get so angry about a situation that you lash out and do something that's ultimately regrettable and affects a lot of people for a lot of years to come. Think about this. Every person that was born from Simeon, every person that was born from Levi, all these people had to suffer because of this one act that they committed. Our anger doesn't just affect us. In fact, bitterness, it, it spreads, the Bible says, and we can do some devastation by one angry act. Who are we affecting? with that outburst of of anger we're affecting more people than we think so yeah be angry but be angry and do not sin let's pray lord thank you for your word uh thank you for this time god such a a wild story lord but we know it's a true story and you have it here to, to teach us, God, to teach us so many different things. Lord, I pray that we would be people um, that practice self-control, Lord, because we know the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, God. And there's a way to, to be angry and not sin. There's a way to be angry at sin, God. And I pray that you would teach us, you would train us uh, in that righteous indignation that, that you had, Lord, that we wouldn't allow anger to get the best of us, but we would allow your Holy Spirit to, to guide and direct us um, when when sometimes that, that that anger does come upon us, God, and you would give us the power to, to honor you, Lord, and, and not um, defile your name. In your name, amen.